Amen. You can grab a seat. So glad you're with us this morning, and I really mean that. I always say that, uh, and it's like technically true, but I don't always feel it. But this morning, I really feel it, man. I'm uh, <laughs> That's not you. That's me. I'm a hard-hearted, terrible person that doesn't get excited about love like I should. But this morning, I'm feeling it. I'm just seeing your faces and remembering like, whoa, that guy. Yeah, these people. Oh my gosh, these people. They're here. They're with us. They're back, you know. It's really exciting to be a part of what this is and what God's doing here. So I'm glad you're here this morning. And uh, if you're new to church, my name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And today we're going to start in Hebrews 4. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, if not, don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a Bible on your way out. But we're going to start in Hebrews 4 and kind of go around. The theme of today is your relationship with God. So I don't know, what part of the Bible do you go to for that? All of it? Yeah, all of it, of course. So we're just going to kind of be in all of it. Uh, but we're going to start in Hebrews 4 so you can turn your way there. I'm not a great reader uh, of like management type books. I, I, every time I do read one, I find it to be really like compelling and interesting. And it, it's like, oh man, you know, I'm such a terrible manager. But I don't always read them well, uh, though, of course, I should. There's one in particular I'm thinking about because it really impacts this whole resolution thing. Everybody's, it's, it's the new year. We all went through Christmas together, and now we're kind of starting a new year together, and it's sort of the time of resolutions. I don't know if you're making those or not. But if you start thinking about what you want your year to look like, what you want to change in your life, you know, if, if you do get serious about that, if you're somebody who plans and, and maybe writes some of that stuff out, it can become overwhelming. I mean, if you just write down the top of a piece of paper, like, what if my life needs to change? Like, you need more than one piece of paper, you know? Like, there's a lot that could be better that you would love to see be better. Maybe a relationship you would love to be more healthy. Maybe a relationship to things like food or money that you would like to be more healthy. Maybe entertainment that you would want to see maybe not be such a huge percentage of your life. Maybe some things you would love to read by the end of the year or learn to do by the end of the year. If you make that list, you know, how, how then do you change it? And the reason I bring up business and management type stuff is because there are really brilliant people who spend time analyzing a system and saying, what all's wrong with it and how do we fix it? And if you do that, whether it's your life or an organization or something much, much bigger and more important, like the church, then you can start kind of organizing. You can start saying, okay, if we've only got a limited amount of time here, if we can only change so much, we've got to focus that on something important. And this guy, a guy named Charles Duhigg, he wrote a book called The Power of Habits, which I thought was really good. But in it, he talks about a guy named Paul O'Neill who became the CEO of a giant aluminum production company called Alcoa. And what had happened was this company, Alcoa, was this really stable, important, brilliant, you know, profitable company that a lot of people had put a lot of money in, and yet, over time, it had started to kind of fall off. And investors are nervous, and they brought in a new CEO, this guy Paul O'Neill. And the CEO is now going to address the investors in this big, lovely ballroom. ballroom. And he, he comes up to the investors, and he introduces himself, and then he starts to talk about Alcoa. And he just says to all these people, he's, he's going to tell them the vision. And what they want to hear is profits. Right? Like they want to hear him say, we're going to make things more profitable. We're going to cut costs. We're going to make this company work for you, the investor. That's what they want to hear. 
But instead, this guy, Paul O'Neill, stands up and says, thanks, I'm so glad to be your new CEO. We are going to be a company that is serious about, they're looking for profits, and he says, safety. Okay. And, you know, like they're waiting for the real sentence. And he goes, we're going to be really, we're not a terrible company when it comes to safety, but we're going to be a company that gets laser focused on safety. In fact, I'd like to call your attention right now to the exits in this ballroom. And he proceeds to tell people how to get out in an emergency, like he's a flight attendant or something. Like he starts telling them how to leave the room in case of a fire. Now, when he finishes his presentation on how he's going to make Alcoa a very safe company for the employees... All the people left, and this maybe tells you the time zone that we're talking about, but they leave and they go run to like a phone bank and start dialing payphones to tell their investors like, hey, sell all your ACOA. They got an idiot that's running the place now. We got to do something. But if they had done that, they would have made a huge mistake because someone who invested a million dollars in Alcoa on the day O'Neill was hired would have earned another million dollars in dividends while he headed the company, and the value of their stock would have been five times bigger when he left. He was very successful. He was very right by focusing on safety. Why? Because he correctly identified that the best way to move this company forward was to focus on something that maybe didn't seem essential, but was, in fact, the one essential thing that needed to change. And as that thing changed, it spiraled out to all these other things that needed to change across the company in order to make it profitable. Again, this isn't a company. You're not a company. You lead your family. You can't lead your family like you lead a company. But there are things that connect. I do think it's right to think about cornerstone habits. What is the thing that is most essential? What is the one knob that if you adjust it, it actually adjusts all the other knobs? Biblically, and I think maybe you know where I'm going with this, it's your relationship to God. You saw the video. Your relationship to God is the one foundational thing that you need to be thinking about as you think about everything else. Here's my case. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Kind of scary. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We hold fast to our confession. Why am I reading you those verses? He's describing God who sees everything as judge of all and is the stopgap. He's the thing that you're going to run into at one point. All of your life is coming to that investor's meeting. It's coming to that evaluation point where you have to stand before him. He's the one to whom you must give an account. And yet, this God is so good that he has sent Jesus Christ to be your high priest. What that means is a lot of things, but it essentially means the point of connection between God and the people, the one who makes you clean, the one who allows you to be before a holy God even though you're not holy. And that high priest, that Jesus Christ has come, he's brought this wonderful, beautiful thing into your life, And now comes the command, finally, where he says, let us hold fast to our confession. 
The internet's brilliant. There's all kinds of crazy things you can get now. We used to have to use paper. They're called um, concordances. It was a way for you to find the word in a bigger text. So if you wanted to look in the Bible and see every time the word love was used, you had to flip in a dictionary-like thing called concordance to the word love. Now, you can just go to Bible Gateway and it's free. You just type in the thing and it'll show you everywhere in that translation. But if you do the word hold, the phrase hold fast, it actually comes up a lot in the Bible. Why? Because God's done something and yet we often just lose it. When you're thinking about your relationship to the Lord and, and everybody's in a different place, and I don't want to assume anything, but, but if you're thinking about your relationship to God, He's done some incredible stuff. He's been amazing and brought about amazing things, and yet we often just sort of lose it, forget it, blind ourselves to it, do something else instead of it. When instead, of course, we have to be remembering to Hold fast to this confession. And this is what I want to do this morning. I, I want to think about that. Are we, are we doing that? Have we done that? How do we know if we've done that? How do we go about doing that? Do you know God? If you knew God, how could somebody see that in your life? That's what we're going to start with. We're going to ask the question, do you know him? And the way we're going to ask it is by looking for evidences. Is there evidence in your life that you know him? Then we're going to say, okay, if you do know him, how do you invest in that relationship? How do you make that one thing that is most crucial, that is most important, grow? And, of course, how do you get there? How do you know him? So let's ask those questions and let's kind of do it quick. All right. First, how do you know if you know him? There's a great uh, writer, a guy named J.I. Packer, who wrote a book called Knowing God, and it's a little dense, honestly. We've got it out there because it's just so good. If you're willing to jump into it, great. And I'm going to make the point later that great books make great readers. It's worth reading something hard, and it is hard, but it's also worth reading. But if you'll read it, it's fantastic. And, it, and he begins with sort of this same diagnosis. How do you know if you know God? And he gives a couple of things that are indicators of, of whether or not you know God. One, people who know God exhibit a great energy. Hmm. Interesting one to start with. Very convicting. We'll talk about it more in just a second, but already, oof. Two, those that know God exhibit, they, they have great thoughts about God. They're impacted by God in their thoughts. People who know God exhibit, they show a great boldness because they know God. And then lastly, they show a great contentment. And that's so uniquely Christian. To have this discontent with the world that makes you go out and, and see things that need to change and fight, fight passionately to bring about that change. That means they have a holy discontent with how the world looks and acts and is in themselves. But then they also exhibit this incredible contentment. They're both great dynamos for change and at the same time experience a great peace. Let's talk about it. First, those that know the Lord, that there's an evidence of knowing God that comes with great energy. And, and the way I want to see all four of these things is just by looking into a life. And there's a guy named Moses in the Old Testament who God used in a big, big way. And Moses was somebody who was uniquely kind of known for knowing God, like in the presence of God, face to face with 
God. And we're going to quote from Scripture in just a second to that effect. But knowing God, he also exhibited a great energy. It says that when he died, when he was 120, it says in Deuteronomy 34, verse 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. Whoa, there's already great vigor. You know, we don't all get to choose, but at some point, you know, you kind of just get worn out. You would think it would happen before 120, but not for Moses. At 120, when he finally dies, it says about this guy, that his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. He was still bouncing around like a college student when he was 120 years old. How? Well, he exhibited what it was to know God. He wasn't just a person who had great energy. He was a person who knew God because he knew God. God through him, did big things. If you read through Scripture, there's this giant thing in the middle called the Psalms. And in those Psalms are these incredible pictures, these very short, poignant, beautiful images of who God is, who we are, what the world's like. And the entryway into the Psalms, Psalm 1, begins with this crazy picture of what it is to be plugged into God and what it is to be separated from God. And the one who knows God, it says in Psalm 1, is like a tree, a tree that's planted. So it's, it's got to be connected to something. It's not on its own. It's dependent. But being dependent, being planted by these streams of living water, this tree becomes immovable, becomes a tree that produces its fruit in its season. It becomes a tree whose leaves don't wither. Because it's rooted in the Lord, because it's where it's supposed to be with the life that it's supposed to have and needs, it becomes something that produces great fruit and it becomes something that's immovable. You ever hit a tree with a car? Did you win? You maybe killed the tree eventually, but it definitely killed your car. That was my first wreck. I was 16. I was trying to get a basketball that was rolling around in the back and I hit a tree. Tree won. The little Honda CRX did not win. Trees are immovable, especially in the psalm that's highlighted because it's conversed with the other thing. Not a tree is the chaff. Trap is free. It's not planted into anything. It can go anywhere that the wind blows it. Chaff is the dust. It's the dirt that's left over when you pull the kernel out, the, the corn or the wheat goes, and what's left is the husk, is the chaff. And that chaff blows around by the wind. It's not fit for anything but to be burned. No, you plug into the Lord and you are given the great vigorous energy that of course comes from being where you're supposed to be and being connected to the energy source that we were supposed to have. You have great energy, know God. You also have great thoughts of God. Moses is somebody who God through Moses gave us incredible insight into who God is. Of course, there's the all of the law and the holiness code and understanding what God is like through the law is a wonderful, beautiful thing. But there's also these, like, these moments, these snapshot moments at the bush where God gives his name to Moses to tell the people of Israel. And there's this moment when, when the people are already out, that God has used Moses to take the, the group of people that were his, the Israelites, out of slavery. They're out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land kind of. And in that place where they have rebelled against God and yet God is still going to be with them and Moses interceded, Moses gets to speak with God. God tells Moses who he is. This is what he says. Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? And Moses bowed his head quickly toward the earth and worshiped. Knowing God means to think great thoughts about God. Knowing God is God revealing something about Him to you. Knowing God is people like Moses getting to have thoughts like this about God. Did you hear what I said about God? Did you hear what God said about Himself in these verses? Suck on them. Think about them. He said, he said that He is merciful and gracious. That He's slow to anger. Oh, I'm so thankful. I'm not slow to anger about silly things. God is slow to anger about very serious things. He's abounding. He's got more than enough of a love that doesn't move. It is steadfast love. This God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Aren't those all synonyms? Yeah, I kind of think so. But I love that he did that. Any which way he cut it. He's a forgiver of the things you do that you should not do, of the, the things that you are that you should not be. And yet, he's also a righteous God, a God who by no means clears the guilty. And it gets scary there where it talks about this visiting of the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But don't we all see that? Statistically, it's the reason many of you are in the room. You don't really care about yourself getting more righteous. You kind of think you're okay. But you really want your kids to be more righteous. So you come back to church. Yeah, because it's super scary. The things that you do, they'll do. What you do in moderation, they do in excess. Scary, scary stuff. In this retelling, I skipped one part, though, because I wanted to bring it over here and kind of put it next to this, where it says, He envisits the iniquity of the father on the children to the third and fourth generation. Oh, my gosh. But it said earlier that He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now, when you say thousands, you go, okay, well, that's a lot. It's not an inconceivable amount. You know, you go to Vivint Arena, you can see thousands of people. That's impressive. But the Hebrew here is actually pointing to not just thousands, but thousands of generations. What he's pointing to is not just thousands of people. He's talking about all the people in a generation and then all of the people in the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation for thousands of generations. Effectively, he's saying forever abounding in steadfast love is communicating that same idea. And Moses got to have these thoughts about God because he was with God because he knew God. I said earlier, I, I think I said it quickly, but one of my seminary professors, he said this. He said, great books make great readers. Are you kind of a, a dunce? Are you kind of a dunderhead? You're a bit of an idiot? Okay, here's what we do. Go read hard stuff. Don't just keep reading comics. Read the stuff that you don't already get or like. Read the stuff that you know is good, even if you don't feel like it's good yet. And it will make you understand why it's good. That's part of what makes it so good. C.S. Lewis talked about this. Don't read the people about, that re write about the great geniuses of the world. 
There is nothing that will make you read Plato less than reading the people who write about Plato because they're so, like, way worse. Part of what made Plato Plato was that he was a genius enough to make this stuff understandable. And I, you know, quibble with that a little bit. I don't know that you just pick this stuff up and read it. Ask Kyle, he'll teach you all about it. But what I'm saying is, if you put yourself before something that's really beautiful, that's really great, it changes you. It begins to grow in you, that appetite. Moms and dads, this is part of our job. You have a kid that only wants to eat mac and cheese. Hey, mac and cheese is great. I like mac and cheese occasionally. But if it's the only thing you eat, then that means that you've actually closed yourself off from a whole world of beautiful foods. And it's the parent's job to make them try lots of things. And you might have to just take one step over and do pizza or chicken nuggets. But eventually, you're going to try and get to heirloom tomatoes. Because if they only ever eat mac and cheese, they're going to miss on this whole thing, this whole beautiful world, this bouquet of different tastes and filling and sensations. God has given you something that's so beautiful. He's given you something that is so wonderful, and you're blind to it. But the process of changing, the process of overcoming is sitting in his presence and watching as he changes you. As your heart begins to quicken and, and beat to the rhythm of this beautiful music. To know God is to think great thoughts about God. Not necessarily like thoughts nobody's ever had before. If you do that, it's probably heresy. But thoughts that you've never had before that teach you something about who this great God is. Those that have known God exhibit great energy. They start to have great thoughts about God, but they also start to have great boldness. Oh, this is so clear in the life of Moses. It's so clear in so many lives. As you come to know the Lord, you get rooted into something that's so thick, that's so real, that through you, it begins to impact other things. Jesus talked about his followers being light and salt. Those are impactful quantities. They change the things that they are brought upon. Turning on a flashlight changes a dark room. Throwing in too much salt changes the situation with eggs. They're impactful when they come. We become impactful as we know Him, and then He begins to work through us. This one in particular we can watch developed in Moses' life. See, Moses was somebody who grew up as an orphan adopted into the family, the, the house of Pharaoh. The people of God, these Israelites, were a slave class within the nation of Egypt, and they were growing so much, they were multiplying so crazy that the Egyptian king decided, hey, we got to cut down that population of the slaves. Let's kill all the male babies. And one of the moms, instead of killing her male baby, put him in a little basket and let him go on the river. And just by God's providence, that little basket with a baby in it made its way to a woman in Pharaoh's house. And she adopts the baby and brings him home. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house, but he grows up as an Israelite. He grows up as an orphan, as an outcast, as a charity case. He grows up as the token Jew. Do you think he had a lot of power in that house? He was probably somebody who was shut up quite a bit. He finally takes a stand. He tries to do something for an Israelite on behalf, uh, uh, for, yeah, for a Jew against an Egyptian. The Egyptian ends up dying. Then Moses spends 40 years as a fugitive out in the desert in Midian. 
At the end of that time, he, he meets God. He sees God in this burning bush that's not consumed. He goes to stand before God, and God tells him that he is going to use Moses to draw the people of Israel out of Egypt, just like he was drawn up out of the water. That's why his name means to be drawn out. But God is going to use him to do that. He's going to go and proclaim who God is to his people and to Pharaoh. And Moses says, no. <laughs> Why? Why? specifically because he's not bold. He can't speak. Oh, yeah. The point of this is not that Moses was awesome. The point of this is that Moses served an awesome God, and he makes that clear to Moses. And we watch. We watch this development. At first, he needs Aaron to talk with him, but then eventually he's speaking directly to the Pharaoh of all of Egypt, telling him, let my people go, making demands, clarifying, speaking about the guy in his heart. He says what needs to be said. He says it with boldness. And then we watch as the people of Israel are taken out of Egypt, he then has to be bold and speak to the Israelites. It might be easy. I don't find it easy, but it might be easy for you to be bold with people that already are mad at you, people that you consider yourself different from. But we all find it hard to be bold to people that we love. It's always hard to have a hard conversation with your wife have a hard conversation with your child, with your friend. And yet God makes Moses bold to both sides, both to Egypt and to Israel. How? Because he knows God. People who know God are also content. So this is where we tap into this last kind of piece, and it's a good transition point because it helps you to ask the question of how you might come to know him. It says that it's, he has great contentment because he knows God. It says in Exodus 33, 9, Moses entered the tent. The pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Love. As a man speaks to his friend. What is it like to know God? Is it like knowing a slave owner who gives out orders and cracks whips? Or is it like knowing a friend, like knowing a father? Is it characterized by love? It says in Romans 8, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is contentment. That is knowing that everything, every even little thing is going to be all right because God loves me. God who can do anything loves me. He loves me with a love that can't be separated from me. We saw that in the steadfast language in Exodus 34, and we're seeing it again in Romans 8 in the New Testament, where God says again on this side of the cross that nothing, death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, nothing, nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because He loves us. Content. Now, how do you have that contentment? How do you know that you know him? How would one go about knowing him? Well, you can't. You can't go from here to heaven. You can't knock and introduce yourself. <laughs> he has to come to know you first. 
Do you know the glorious news of the Bible, though? He has! <laughs> he has! He's already done it! He's here. He's knocking right now to try and have you come to know him. He has to initiate. And can I tell you, he has. The point of scripture is that we are separated from him, but that he has come to be with us. He's come to make a way for us to be made clean. That's all this priest language. We needed Jesus to come and to take our sin away so that we could be made clean to be able to stand before this righteous God, this holy God. And he does. That video that we had, the 5% life, and there was the guy running on the treadmill. And he said, well, the point of this is not to see what you can do for God. You can't do anything for God. He's God. He's not waiting on you to put some final piece together. No, it's what can he do through you. You can't get to him, but he can come to you, and he has through Jesus. So you look at your life and you say, man, I don't see any contentment I don't see any boldness, certainly not when it comes to the Lord. I don't think about Him much, and when I do, it tends not to be great thoughts of Him. And I certainly don't exhibit great energy. When I think about a 5% life, and that seems like such a small percentage-wise, but then when you actually tell me what it means, I say, no, 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 there's no way I've got enough time to do that. There's no way I've got enough energy to attempt a little, get up a little earlier to attempt that. Well... If none of these things are in your life, I think you've got to ask yourself a question. Do you know him? You only come to know him one way. You come to know him by knowing the word, knowing this Lord that has come and revealed himself to you. If you say, yes, I do know him. I mean, I may not be Moses. Well, none of us are Moses. <laughs> you know, the point isn't that Moses was Moses. The point was that Moses knew Yahweh, knew God, and God through Moses did incredible things. If in Jesus you know the Lord, then let's figure out how to increase that in your life. That's the one capstone, keystone habit. This is the one knob that if you turn, it'll change everything else. Do you know him? How do you come to know him? Well, that video, again, did such a good job. It's just relationship, friend. It's just time. We need to break this down because, unfortunately, we don't have a healthy relationship. If it was healthy, it would just be organic and work, but it's not healthy. How do you make it work? Well, any relationship, you talk. He talks to you through the Word, so read the Bible. Think about it. Man, it's so possible to just read it and check a box. Don't just check a box. Think about it. And then talk back. Conversation. He talks to you through the Word. You speak back through prayer. You don't know what to say. No problem. Open up to that giant book of Psalms. It's the easiest one to find. If you have a paper Bible, you just let it fall in half, and it's always going to be in the Psalms. Just find one of those and just start reading through it and say, is any of this my heart? Just pray it out loud to the Lord. And then live as though that relationship is true. And that's what happens. You go on a date. It's great. You talk. She talks. Whoa. And then you live the next day as though that date happened. You like text. Maybe you go out again. You live in the light of the reality of that blooming relationship. You come to know the Lord by reading His Word and speaking back to Him, and then you obey Him. You live in the light of the reality of that relationship. He really is your God, and so you really do start to obey Him. It says it so beautifully in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. 
Is it a command to text her back? No. Yes, but no. It's also just a pleasure. It's not burdensome. You pursue this relationship. So how, how do you go about it? Man, that 5% thing is so easy. God time is so easy. It's not good, but it's easy. I wrote it, so I'm saying it's not great, but it's easy. And it's supposed to model. There's a couple of verses. There's a couple of thoughts about those verses. And then there's a prayer prompt for you to talk to God about what you just thought about. Then there's that Bible reading plan. The New Testament in a year is like one chapter a day, folks. It's not bad. And the Bible reading plan that we have has these little YouTube videos that give you an overview of what the heck you're reading. So helpful. I hope that you're way past that and you've got all kinds of stuff that you're going to go back and do and spend much more than 15 minutes a day. But if not, no problem. Praise God. We're in this together. Let's start. God time's a great way to start. But wherever you're at, wherever you start, commit to knowing God this year. Commit to abiding in that relationship with Him this year. And watch as everything else changes. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would teach us to know you. You're the initiator. You're the one who comes to find us. You're the one who said, I am that I am. You're the one that came to draw your people out from darkness into light. You're the one who was born, who lived, who died on a cross, and then rose. Father, as you have invaded, as you have spoken, let us respond. Let us be a people who commit to knowing you in your word, who be a people who commit to responding to your love with love, love that obeys, not in a burdensome way, but obeys because we, we trust that you're good and we want to do the things that you say are good. Lord, and as we come to know you, let us be a people of great energy, a people of great thoughts of you, a people of great boldness and a people of great contentment, a people of great peace, that the world would see that things are different for those who know the Lord, and your name will be glorified. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.